It's so good to see all of you here in the house of the Lord today. We are continuing today in this series of messages we've been on for the past uh, 12 weeks. This is week 13, and this will be my final message in the series. Some of our house-to-house groups are uh, still, I think, a week behind finishing up, but uh, this will be the final uh, message in the series. And I want to remind you that next Sunday we're having a real special uh, moment, we're going to be visited by a scholar who's going to be sharing with us, and his area of expertise is really right on the money for us as a church. Uh, His area of expertise uh, is working in multicultural uh, gospel work, and that's very much what God's been doing in our church. So I think it's going to be very uh, beneficial to us. Uh, He'll be sharing a message uh, in our morning service. He's going to be talking to us about the Syrophoenician woman in Matthew, and going to tell us a little bit about uh, kind of different cultural lenses and and how we approach Christ. Uh, So that's going to be a great message. And then in the evening, Sunday at 6 p.m., we'll have some food, and uh, he will share again, uh, and uh, there'll be a QA. and a And then Monday night at 6, there'll be the same thing. So he's going to do three uh, moments of sharing with us, but I think that's going to be really exciting next week. Uh, And I think it'll be a good... Uh, kind of an end cap, perhaps, to this experiencing God we've been working through together, trying to figure out what God's up to in our church and what he's calling us into together. Um, We have been talking for 12 weeks about experiencing God. Uh, What does it all boil down to? How do we develop a pattern of living that keeps us focused on God in such a way that we experience him working his will in our lives consistently. I think the author of Hebrews has some words to share with us about the kind of life we're supposed to be living with God. So uh, we're gonna be in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25, and uh, some of you might notice that verse 25 is the memory verse for week 12 of experiencing God. Uh, We're gonna be talking about experiencing God in your daily life. Before we start reading, let me uh, recap just a little bit of what's going on in the letter to the Hebrews. This is a very long letter, uh, one of the longest in the New Testament. And unlike many letters where we cover a lot of different topics, really the author of Hebrews focuses his entire letter on one long-running argument about Jesus. And he's trying to convince his readers that Jesus is superior to anything and everything you would care to compare him with. And specifically in terms of our approach to God and the whole idea of religion or, or trying to seek out God or experience God in any way, Jesus is the culminating reality in all of that. And throughout the letter, there are moments where he'll talk about how great Jesus is. And then, having said some things about Jesus, he will issue an appeal to his readers that there is some way in which we should be impacted and we should be responding to these truths about who Jesus is. The first happens in chapter 3. And he's been arguing leading up to that that Jesus is superior to all the angels. I don't know if you've experienced this, but there are people who are kind of very interested in angels and think of them as uh, the way in which God is going to protect you from harm and and focus a lot of attention on angels. And uh, in the first century, a lot of Jews were very interested in angels. And uh, 
to the point that they had developed the idea between the Old Testament and the New Testament, they had developed the idea that when God gave the law to Moses on Mount Sinai, he, he mediated that information to Moses through angels. Even though in, in, uh, in the books of Moses, it's not said that way. It's just said that God gave him the information directly. Uh, but angels were, were very important in the mindset of Jews in the first century. Well, he's been arguing Jesus is far superior to any angel. And then because of that, here's what he says. This is, how, this is the appeal he issues. Therefore, holy siblings, partakers of the heavenly calling, Consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Jesus, who is faithful to the one who appointed him. Uh, so uh, he talks about being called in a heavenly calling and to uh, being, considering Jesus as this high priest of our confession. He continues arguing about who Jesus is and points out that Jesus is even superior to Moses. Now for Jews in the first century, Moses was the pinnacle. He was uh, more important than any of the other biblical authors because he set down the, the framework for everything else. In fact, the prophets were m mainly uh, covenant enforcers. Their job was really to help Israel in the later centuries go back to the covenant of Moses and really keep it and apply it in their day. Uh, it all started with Moses and he gave the kin, Ten Commandments and the covenant of the law and he was considered so important but Jesus is far superior to Moses. If Moses was faithful in God's house, Jesus is faithful over God's house. He is administrator of everything that belongs to God. So what does he say, what's the appeal at this point? Therefore, verse 14 of chapter 4. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us take hold of this confession. Let's lay hold of it. And then he goes on in the next few chapters to argue that Jesus is superior to the entire Levitical priesthood that was established in the law of Moses. And not only that, but what he has done by giving himself as the true sacrifice. And in fact, all the sacrifices of animals in the Old Covenant were merely foreshadowing. Because the blood of bulls and lambs can never cover sin, the author of Hebrews tells us. There was only one, only ever one sacrifice for sin. And it was what happened at the cross. And, and so not only is he superior to the entire Levitical priesthood, not only does he establish himself as the supreme high priest mediating between sinful man and righteous God, but he also has established a new and better covenant. The old covenant was weak and powerless to change anything in our hearts, but this covenant has the actual power to transform a human heart eternally. And the covenant he establishes is superior. And that's where we pick it up in verse 19. Therefore, siblings, since we have boldness to make an entrance into the holy places by the blood of Jesus, an entrance he inaugurated for us, a fresh and living way through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over God's house, and I'm sorry, but I'm going to stop there. Uh, because all of this is preamble to three instructions. 
so let's look at the preamble before we look at the three instructions that are given in the imperative. Uh, first of all, remember, he, he addresses us as siblings. Brothers and sisters, this is the miracle of what Christ has done to us. We used to be strangers. We used to be enemies of God and each other. Now we are siblings. We are part of a family. What has Jesus accomplished for us? Well, he has made it possible for us to make a bold entrance into the holy places. Now, he's been talking in chapter 9 about the tabernacle, and this was a physical representation for Israel of God's presence among them. God pitched his tent right in the center of the Hebrew camp, and this was where God lived. And the, he talks about the holy places in the tabernacle, the holy place, and he talks about the different items that were there, the table of the presence and the altar of incense and the lamp, golden lampstand. Um, and uh, he, he talks about uh, the altar and all these things. And he talks about the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was and the mercy seat, the mercy of, pro, the, the, the lid of propitiation is really what it was called. Um, that covered that covenant box. That was a representation of the very presence of God Almighty. And most people would never have access to any of those areas, those holy areas. Only priests were allowed into the holy place where they were to perform the services uh, in the uh, sacred items that were in that area. And only the high priest was allowed into the holy of holies and only one day a year and not to hang out with God but to come in with a sacrifice of blood for his sin and for the sins of the people and immediately exit his presence. What has Jesus done? Well, because of him, we now have full access into these holy places. Not just the holy place and what it represents, but the holy of holies itself. Jesus has made possible that we can be in the very presence of Almighty God in intimacy. Before he came, there was no way, there was no path, there was no avenue into the Holy of Holies. But what Jesus has accomplished, he has made an entrance and we are to enter boldly not with timidity, not wondering, man, am I welcome here? Should I even be here? No, but boldly, confidently, with absolute confidence, coming into the very holy of holies, the very presence of God. And that boldness does not come from us. That boldness comes from the blood of Jesus that has made this possible. And in this, Jesus has let us know that the Father has thrown wide open the doors of his innermost sanctum, and invites us in. So our response, our appropriate response is to boldly step into that. He describes this as an entrance he inaugurated for us. In other words, this path didn't used to be there. But Jesus blazed the trail ahead of us. And in going before us, he opened it up for us behind there did not used to be a path for, for man to enter the presence of almighty holy God. But because of what Jesus did when God became a man and lived this human life perfect, 
perfectly and offered himself willingly as the only sacrifice for sin on the cross and extinguished in his flesh the wrath of God against all sin. Because he did that, he burst open a path. He says that this happened and and what he's opened up is a fresh and living way. A new way. Before Jesus died on the cross, there was no way to God. And Moses did not give us a way to God. If that had been the way to God, God would never have sent Jesus. There wouldn't have been a need if there was another way. God opened a new way that did not exist. Without Jesus, there is no path to intimacy with God. There is no welcome into his holy place. It's not only a fresh way, it's a living way. It's not dead, it's not static. This way we are called to walk into, this walking into the very presence of God Almighty is meant to be a pattern of living. It is not a one-time event. It's not just this one moment where you come to the realization and you place your faith in Jesus and all heaven is burst open to you. There is that moment, but that is an initiation into a living way. We walk in this presence of God in this intimacy with God and he opened this up through the curtain that is through his flesh and this is uh, the author of Hebrews alluding to something God did when Jesus died on the cross there in the temple in Jerusalem God took hold of that veil that heavy heavy curtain that separated the holy of holies from everyone else that excluded everybody from entry God took that curtain and ripped it in two from top to bottom We're told that in several of the Gospels, that when Jesus died, that veil in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and God was letting us know that now the path is open. Now the welcome is extended, and the Father welcomes us into the very holy of holies, into the most intimate reality of his heart and who he is. Jesus made that possible, and we are to walk into this, not timidly, not half-heartedly, not, uh, I'll see if I feel like it today, but we are to walk in this path boldly, with both feet in. We are are to fully commit ourselves and our hearts and souls to this path that Jesus has opened up for us. And ultimately, it is the path of intimacy with God. That's what we've been talking about for 12 weeks. How do we develop intimacy with God? How do we discover what is his heart? What is his will? And how do I make my life a part of that? How do I surrender my heart and life to that divine glory, to that will? Jesus has made it all possible by his death on the cross and we can boldly step into this living way because of him. And he is this great high priest over God's house. Not only is he the great mediator between sinful me and absolutely righteous Father God, but he is also high priest over God's house. He is not just a mediator sitting in there, but he is also the administrator of the whole thing. 
He is over the whole thing. There is no access to God. There is no life apart from Jesus. He is over all of it. So let's get to the actual instructions. Let's finish some sentences here. There are three things we're told to do. The first is approach. Verse 22, let us approach with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with hearts that have been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and with a body that has been washed with pure water. The first thing we need to do in response to what God has done in Jesus is draw near. We need to come close, not stay at a distance, not sit at home and think, wow, what a wonderful thing Jesus did by dying on the cross for me so that I could enter the very holy of holies, the very presence of God Almighty and dwell there boldly. That's not something you just think about. You have to do. You have to approach. You have to draw near. We have to respond to this by living lives that are focused on approaching God, ever drawing near. We don't sit back. We are deliberately approaching God with a true heart. There's a lot of insincerity in churches. It's a common complaint about all the hypocrites, all the people who are putting on some kind of a show, who are going through the motions, but there's no genuine pursuit of God. And that's true. There are a lot of people who are doing that, who show up in churches and who do the religious thing, but genuinely have no interest in God. If that's you, get out of here. This is not the place for you. This is a house for people who want to draw near to God. If you want to impress people, this isn't the church that's going to work for you. But if you want to find God, this is a great place because God is here and he draws us to himself and he invites us to approach him with a true heart, with no pretense, with nothing but a genuine desire to know God. I hope that burns in the, in the core of who you are, that you want more than anything in your life to know God. Who is he? And to find in him your whole reason for existence. I pray that that is what burns in your heart, that you have a true heart in which you are approaching God with a sincere heart, in full assurance of faith. There's no way to approach God but faith. We can't approach God based on our merits. We're broken, we're sinful, everything, even the best thing we have to offer is is already tainted by our sin. Some way, it's twisted the wrong direction. We know it. We're rotten to the core. We cannot draw near to God based on what we have to offer Him. All we can do is respond to his invitation in Christ, the the tearing open of the veil and Jesus saying, come. So we approach God in faith. Not that we deserve it, but in faith that God has said, I have taken care of your sin and I want you here. That we extend our trust, our faith to Jesus, and we do so with full assurance because we know that the person in whom we have deposited this faith is worthy of it. 
we have a full assurance of this faith. Faith is a very interesting thing. The author of Hebrews spends a lot of time talking about faith. In chapter 11, it's a very long chapter and he, he spends the whole chapter talking about faith. He basically describes faith as the thing that connects you from here to what God has decreed and promise, promised. Faith is that tether between the now and the, the full glory at the other end of God's promises. And faith uh, is not wishful thinking. It's not, oh, uh, it's not, I, I wish this were true. Faith is, I have encountered this God who has changed my life and I am fully assured that my trust in him is not misplaced. I can approach him with a true, sincere heart, without fear. And notice again, we were looking at this last week in a different part of the Bible. Hearts that have been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. This approach to God is going to result in our lives being changed. We're not clean. We have an evil conscience. There's something wrong with us. The things we are drawn, drawn to, the things we lean towards, the, the attitudes we tend to have and the, the, the bent of our soul toward others and God is wrong. It's selfish and greedy and hurtful and, and combative and all these terrible things it shouldn't be and it, it messes with all of our relationships in every single way. So this approach to God is going to involve God changing that. God's sprinkling our hearts. And here he's using language from the first covenant of how blood was sprinkled on, on the altar and, and the sprinkling of the blood cleansed from, ritually cleansed from sin. Well, here we're talking about the real thing, not symbols of it, but the actual reality of God transforming our heart from within. A, a, an evil conscience being sprinkled clean by the blood of Christ. Being changed in the very core of who we are. You have to commit to that if you want the gospel. If that's what you, are, are, if you want to embrace faith in Jesus, you have to know that he will not leave you the way you are. It is surrender to a radical transformation. There's a reference here to baptism, a body that has been washed with pure water. What a beautiful symbol baptism is, where we make public our commitment, our faith placed in Jesus as our only Savior and Lord, <coughs> and we let everybody know by <coughs> going under the water and coming out of it that Jesus has promised us, if we just put our faith in him, he will cleanse us from all sin. <clears throat> not just uh, eliminate the final penalty of sin, the eternal death, but actually that when we put our faith in him, he begins the process of transformation that will one day culminate in my soul being spotless. My very heart being untainted by anything unworthy. That is what Jesus is up to in our lives. If you don't want that, you don't want Jesus you don't want the gospel. 
We have to walk this walk. And, and, and it's an approach. There is a definite target towards which we are moving. And it's not me. And it's not some particular goal. The target is God. We are approaching God. And this is what's happening along the way. So what do we have to do to experience God in our lives daily? We have to stay in this approach. We have to continue to walk toward him. Don't ever settle down and say, I've come far enough. Don't ever do that. This is a new and living way. You need to walk in it with a true heart, full assurance of faith. And in that process, Christ is sprinkling our conscience clean, changing us from the inside out. What else do we have to do? Let us hold fast to the confession of hope without wavering. For the one who has promised is faithful. We hold fast, we cling to, we hug tightly to our chest, not just hope, but the confession of that hope. The hope we have in Christ is not something you keep to yourself, it's not some internal thing. It is something we tell anybody and everybody around us about. And I've told you this before, the hope we're talking about in the Bible is different from any other hope you've talked about. You might say, I'm planning on going camping tomorrow. I hope it doesn't rain. If you live in Texas, you know that's a very uncertain hope, right? Who knows? Maybe or may not. And for us, hope often has the idea of wishful thinking. Oh, I wish that was the way it is, but how often does the things happen the way I wish they did? Not very often. That's not the hope we're talking about. I've told you this before. The hope we're talking about in in the Bible, the hope that is rooted in God's promises, is like saying, I hope the sun comes up tomorrow. I hope gravity keeps working tomorrow, that when I jump up, I don't float off into space. I hope that the sun will still be burning tomorrow. I hope that the earth will continue to rotate on its axis the way it has been as long as I've been around. I don't control any of these things. I have no way to guarantee that any of those hopes I've just described are going to happen. But it's not wishful thinking to say that. You see, the God who has made these promises, who has promised us access to his own heart and soul, who has promised us a path of transformation and eternal glory, the God who has made those promises to us is the God who also has said the sun is going to continue to rise every morning. It's the God uh, who has said, I'm going to keep the earth rotating on its axis. It's the God who makes everything happen. When our hope is that certain, and, and here's the hope we have in Christ, that the victory is won, that the story of creation has already been written, and that the end is not in question. 
Sin and death have an expiration date because they are already defeated and there is nothing remaining but God's grace who leaves the door open for more people to come into his presence before he finally has to shut it closed. That's the only thing that prolongs it is God's grace, is God's heart for the lost who have not yet come in. This hope is an absolute certainty and we live our lives clinging to that because there are dark moments in life. There are dark days in our walk with Christ and there are uh, moments where we are tempted to despair. And instead of despairing, we cling tenaciously with both arms to this confessed hope we live in. And it isn't just pie-in-the-sky wishful thinking. This is the thing the universe itself is built upon. That is where my hope is laid. The foundational realities of existence itself, rooted in God himself who made it all exist. Don't ever let people who are looking at you and observing your remarkable resilience and your ability to uh, endure hardship and your uh, inexplicable cheerfulness in the face of it all. Don't let anybody ever think that that's because you're just a great person. If that's happening in your life, you confess your hope. You know why I'm okay right now? Let me tell you about my hope. Let me tell you what my security is rooted in. Let me tell you about the God who has anchored my life. We cling fast. Why? Because the one who has promised is faithful. Everybody else will fail. Everybody else will fail me, but God will never do that. One last thing. Consider. You might have thought, given what I've said thus far, that I've given you an explanation of how you and God can have a great time together. You approach the Father, you come into his very presence, and there's this life of transformation and confession of hope, but it's basically you and God doing this thing. That's not the way it works. And let us consider how we may stir up one another to love and good works. There's a one another in this journey. This path that Jesus has opened up for us is not meant to be walked alone. And we hear this all the time, people have become too good for church. Oh, the people in church, they're, they're hypocrites or they're this or they're that. I, I'm better off without them. It's just me and God because I'm better than them and they're just gonna drag me down. Nobody quite says it that way, but That's really what you're thinking, isn't it? That you're too good for everybody else. They're too bad for you. They're beneath you. They're beneath your fellowship. So it'll just be you and God. Guess what? God doesn't want you by yourself. He wants you with all your siblings. He wants his family together. We don't get to opt out of the family of God. Holy siblings, Set apart to God. 
That's something God does to us. We, we, don't, we don't decide this isn't for me. What draws us to each other? How do we live life together? How do we experience God's will being made a reality in my life together? Well, here's what I focus on. I devote myself to stirring up, and, and it's not just me, we're doing it to each other. But I am doing it to you and you are doing it to me and we are all doing it to each other. We are trying to stir up one another to love and good works. That word stir up is not just a positive connotation word. It also has the idea of provoke or irritate. Here it's being used positively. And the idea is if you're complacent or asleep or ignoring things, this is the prodding, the poking that is going to get you to get out of your chair. We're supposed to be poking each other, provoking one another, not not in the negative sense. I'm not provoking you to anger. I'm not provoking you to to, uh, move away from God. It's just the opposite. I am stirring you up. I am provoking you. I'm prodding you to love and good works. There are never a lack of reasons to not love one another. Loving is hard. We're messed up. And we fail one another constantly. And we, we fail to understand one another. And we fail to love one another and to interpret one another's actions or inactions in the best possible light. We often darken everything even within our own mind and create this whole thing that kills love. That destroys it, that erodes it from within because we are not loving one another. So what we do together is when we see that love is cooling in us and the Bible warns us that that is a sign that uh, we are in the final stages, right? The love of many will cool, Jesus warned. When we see that happening, when we see people losing love for one another, we don't just sit there and let it happen. We poke. Why aren't you loving this other person? What's going on here? Why are you letting your heart grow cold? What? We can't do that. And we provoke one another to love and good works. Now, good works, religions get it all wrong. Many religions and many religious people say it backwards. They say that good works is what we do to please God. And if we do the good works, then God looks on us with favor. That is not how it works. You see, the, the, the being received by God has only happened not because of our good works, but because of what Jesus did on the cross. And, and God has already said, come on in, I welcome you with open arms. So the favor of God has already been extended thanks to Christ. One of the things in John's gospel that stands out is how many times Jesus talks about God as Father. It's more than a hundred times in the gospel. God isn't just the omnipotent judge. He is the loving Father who invites us to draw near to him. So good works is not the way we gain God's favor, the way God looks on us and says, oh, you're good enough, now I'm going to treat you as a child. 
Now I'm going to love you as a child of mine. No, God has already extended that grace to us to the point that he sent the son to die to make it possible for us to be reconciled to him. He already loved us before there was even a way for him to love us. And he made that way for us, sending the Son to blaze that trail for us. So when we talk about good works, it's not something we're doing to earn brownie points with God, to kind of get God to open himself up to us. All of that has already happened. At this point, good works become a benefit, not a payment. Do you understand that? That when you are in Christ, good works, they're not something you have to pay to God. They're what he gives you to do. You see, before I was rotten to the core and I had no way to do good works, I thought maybe they were good enough for me, but in the end, they were not gonna result in anything eternally good and lasting in anybody's life. I just don't have it in me. But because of what God has done, I get to participate in the good things he is doing. That's what we've been talking about for 12 weeks. What is God doing? What are the good works God is up to? My father is working till today, Jesus said, and I work with him. That's what we've been trying to learn to do. God is doing good works, and we have the privilege of joining him. So that now in our lives, good works can be coming out rather than evil works. Works that are connected to the eternal purposes of God. Works that can resound and resonate throughout eternity. When we think about each other and our responsibility to each other, and there's no getting away from that, To be in Christ is to have bought into this responsibility. I'm responsible for you and you are responsible for me and it happens every single way. We all owe ourselves to each other so as we're approaching God and we're walking in this new path in him and as we are confessing and clinging to that hope we have in him, we are also constantly poking and prodding one another so that we don't fall back, so that we don't allow ourselves to lose love for one another. Nothing kills a church quicker than for the church to lose its love. You know, when the church in Acts was growing impossibly fast, it was because they loved each other so much, they would lay down their life for each other in a second. They wouldn't think twice about it. When they prayed to God and they were facing hardships and persecutions, they didn't pray to God for protection. They prayed for courage and strength to honor Christ. When we love each other and live this life together the way God is calling us to, that's when we experience God doing amazing things. When we allow our love to cool, uh, it, it, it erodes. So what do we do? The minute we see that happening, we grab the little stick that's pointy at the end and we say, what's going on? Poke. What's happening? Christ has given us better than that. Why aren't you taking hold of it? We have good stuff to do together. Why aren't you doing it? 
Why are you sitting and observing your brothers and sisters work, the work of Christ, while you sit and criticize and don't participate? Join! We provoke one another to love and good works. Not abandoning gathering together. It's very weird, the construction in the Greek there. It's not abandoning the gathering together of them. Third person, as some people are in the habit of doing. And I think he words it that way to say, there are some people who are not part of what Christ is doing, who are not part of this one anothering. Those people have the habit of abandoning their gathering together, the gathering together of them. Because that's the behavior of somebody who does not belong to Christ. That's the them that are outside of the circle of the us. And the warning is don't be one of the them. Always be one of the us. And what do the them do? The ones who exclude themselves from this circle of fellowship. They're the ones who abandon gathering together. It's too much work, it's too much trouble, it's too hard. I'd rather just do my own thing. I think the author of Hebrews is warning us that if that's the path you choose, you have just set yourself outside of the circle of God's people. You have become the them. So not doing that, but encouraging one another. I want you to understand this this is not about being critical or legalistic. When I'm talking about us provoking one another, I'm talking about it in a good way. We are provoking one another to the better. We are trying to encourage one another. Now just telling somebody, you're wrong, you're doing it wrong, you're worthless, you're, you're a mess, that's not encouraging anybody. Now there are many true things we can say, but if we're not encouraging then we're not doing the work we're being called to do. This poking and prodding one another is not just about wagging our fingers at each other and looking and seeing where everybody is coming up short, where you're failing, and pointing it out to everybody and making uh, a person feel awful. That's not what we're trying to do. It's not about developing a critical spirit within the life of the church. It's doing everything with this hope that what I'm trying to do in your life is going to result in betterment on your part. That your life is going to be better for it than worse. I'm not trying to grind you into the dust. I'm not trying to prove that I'm better than you. I am just trying to encourage you to step up as you are encouraging me to step up fully into what Christ is calling us to. And to not hold back and to not hang back but to fully lean into it together. We are encouraging one another, not wagging fingers at each other. Encouraging one another. It can be so much sweeter if we do it God's way. It can be so much better if we surrender our hearts to what God is trying to do in us. All the more as you see the day approaching. There is a day where Jesus will close the curtain on this age of history.
There is a day in which Jesus will say, all right, it is time to open the books. It is time for everyone, the living and the dead, to come before me and give an account of themselves and what they have done in response to what I have done in their lives. And some in this final moment of judgment will be ushered into eternal life and some will be consigned to eternal death. Every enemy will be eradicated and the final one to be eradicated eradicated will be death itself. That day is fast approaching. You know that we are closer to that day today than we have ever been. That's true every day. And that day is a certainty. What we're being encouraged to do is to live our lives together in light of that day in light of what God is going to do with us eternally. Not in light of all the crud that we experience and realize around us today. Don't put your eyes on that. Don't live according to what's going to stay behind. Live your life. Try to pattern everything about your life around the things that are going to last forever. That are not going to stop. We have to do this together. Jesus is better. That's what the author of Hebrews has been trying to say for 10 full chapters in his letter. Only Jesus stands as Lord over all creation. Only he mediates for sinners and provides a way that we can boldly approach the very presence of God Almighty. Only Jesus extends to us the hope of glory and life eternal. It's time for us to stop wasting our lives, to seize this great salvation with both arms. It's time time for us to join this walk of freedom that only Jesus can give us to discover and to embrace the family of God without reservation to devote ourselves fully to one another, stirring one another up to true love, a love that results in the work of the kingdom, the work of life and light and everything good. Are you going to claim what Jesus has laid before us? I pray that you will. We're going to sing a song now. This is our time to respond to the word of God. I don't know what God may have put in your heart this morning as you listen to this. There are a lot of things that I've been challenged on looking through this passage this week. And I'm certain that God's word is meant to elicit from us a response of surrender and obedience. So whatever God is laying on your heart, this is your time to come forward and tangibly speak it to another human being and say, this is what God is telling me and I want to commit to it and let them pray for you. That's what we do here. So let's all stand and there are uh, people who are going to be here at either side. Whatever God has laid on your heart, come forward. Share that with those who are here at the front and let them pray for you and encourage you as we uh, stir one another up to the love and good works he's called us to. Come while we sing.